the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm Catch a gleam of glory bright, but still I'll pray till heaven I found. Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Lord, let me on, let me stand. My faith on heaven's table, many years, people could not understand the mystery of God. And they would ask, what is the mystery of God? What is he doing? All through the old covenant, what do these things represent? What do they mean? People had a hard time understanding these things. But we come to the book of the church. And there the Apostle Paul makes very plain for us what the mystery of God is all about. We read in Ephesians, the first chapter, and I'm going to begin reading for you in verse 10. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth 
together under one head, even Christ. So the first part of the mystery is that God intends to bring everything together in unity under Jesus Christ, who was revealed at Calvary. Now, in this book of the church, in chapter 1, verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We shared yesterday on Pilgrim's Progress that God intends to use human beings in this awesome mystery of bringing everything together under the headship of Jesus. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress today. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. And I'm Alexandra Greenley. Thank you for joining us today. We're glad you're with us. We're going to go into deep water. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, the mystery is that God intends to bring everything in this rebellious prison planet under the headship of Jesus Christ. And he intends to do that through the church. Now, you see, immediately the devil wants to destroy the church. And how can he destroy the church most effectively? Well, first, the church can no longer hold what they call worship services. Instead, they must hold events. They must now call the church a hospital for sinners, not a home for saints. So now everybody is on an equal footing. Everybody is just welcome to come as they are, in whatever way they are. And we're all the church. And then everyone's going up to take communion. Everyone's celebrating the, the body of Christ, even in the midst of their sin and wickedness. If you read carefully the book of Ephesians, you will see that to be a part of the church, you must be washed and made clean. You no longer walk in rebellion against Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. 
So literally, the book of Ephesians tells us that we must leave our sin and be transformed into new creatures. And then we're fit to join the body of Christ. You can't put a sinner and attach it to the body of Christ. It doesn't work. You have to be clean. But now, what is it that moves the church? It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that today. And the Holy Spirit moving draws us into the redemptive love of Jesus. So it's not an exclusive club. It's a a workhorse of men and women, boys and girls, who have as their only interest the salvation of the lost and the dying. They're on a mission, a salvation mission. And they are recognized by the world by the love they share one with another. Yes, so we're going to talk today about love in the church. And we hear a lot about love today, but what is what is love really? And it's not a mushy-gushy type of love that we're going to see, but we're going to see that it's really a self-sacrificing, very costly love. And there's 59 commandments in the New Testament where Jesus, or the writers of the epistles sometimes, tell us how we're to relate to one another. And the most common command that you'll see of how Christians are to relate to each other is love one another. You can read through, it's about a two-page list, and you'll hit these sections where it's like 10 verses in a row, love one another. No, I want to interrupt you. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear. Scripture teaches that you cannot call yourself a Christian and be walking in known rebellion and sin. So this love is going to have to flow out of holiness. Yes. It's going to have to flow out of sacrifice of ourselves to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. It is the company of the saved. Yes, so when we talk about love in the church, we're talking about how are those who have been born again, as we just read in Ephesians, they have been raised to life. They are, they are dead to their whole old way of life. They've been made into new people in Christ. Well, how are they supposed to interact with other Christians? And as I just shared, the main thing we see is love. So we'll begin in John 17, verses 20 through 23. This was the prayer that Jesus offered the night before he was arrested and then crucified. So Jesus prays, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So first, let's 
make sure we see that Jesus prayed this for us today because he said, I pray for those who will believe in me through the apostles' message. So the apostles' message we have recorded in the scriptures, which form the New Testament, and we have believed in Jesus through these scriptures. So we're part of the people included in this prayer. So Jesus prayed for us that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. Now, this is really incredible if you just think about how seamlessly one Jesus and the Father are. We often have trouble understanding the Trinity because we're, we, we understand that Jesus is not the Father exactly. There's some kind of distinction, but what's really the difference? So that kind of oneness is supposed to be in the church. And it's not just a oneness in the church, but that oneness in the church is in Jesus. So in other words, all of us in the church should be so much like Jesus that there's not really any difference in our character between us and Jesus. And likewise, amongst ourselves, we're of such one accord that there's no wedge that anything or anyone could get in between us. You could talk to one Christian and they would have exactly the same feelings and sentiments when it comes to holiness and the gospel as any other Christian would. So this oneness is a real experience that naturally occurs among the saints when there's no offense, when there's no sin, when we don't have doubts about one another's character, when there isn't any unresolved conflict, when there isn't any unexplained distance, and so forth. So we see this, Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So it's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, giving us God's glory that produces this oneness. So in other words, this isn't something that we just try to work on. We don't try to be one by saying, okay, we need more fellowship time in the church. You know, let's set up one, one night a week where we're going to meet together and have dinner. That's not the way we go about this. What, the way we go about it is when there's a complete transparency among the people of God. The Holy Spirit will supernaturally produce this great bubbling up of love, of tenderness, of gentleness, of loving concern and kindness, and of forbearance among the people of God. So this is something that we don't have to try to drum up. It feels natural, like it's just coming bubbling up out of us. It feels effortless. The Apostle Paul described this in 1 Thessalonians 4.9 when he said, Now about brotherly love, you do not need anyone to write to you, because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And I think this brotherly love and this unity is the sweetest experience that we can have on the earth. And perhaps some of you have been blessed to be in small groups or in churches where this really happened. And we'll talk a little bit more about it later. But right now, let's look at one more feature of this passage from John 17, which is that Jesus said, The world will know 
that the father sent him because of how we love each other. So this unity and this love in the church is necessary for the conversion of the world. It's not just some nice, you know, benefit of being part of the church. It's not fluffy, but it's really integral to the Great Commission. So though this brotherly love and unity does arise naturally from God being in us, the unity does require on our part a putting away of all sin. Now we know this if we just think about times in our lives where people have violated our trust. It's very hard to have that kind of unity and that love and that oneness unless there is a humbling of our hearts towards each other. So we can't entrust ourselves in this way to our brothers and sisters if there are unresolved wounds from the past, if we have doubts about their piety. You know, if there's someone in your church and, and you see them and you wonder, you know, is this person secretly watching pornography? You're going to have trouble really allowing the Holy Spirit to produce this love because there's this doubt about their character. The same thing will happen if someone is repeatedly offending, making offenses against us or against others in the church. And this especially will happen if someone may not be offending us, but we might we may see them, you know, hurting another person. And if that continues to happen, then that is a block because, you know, our sense of justice rises up and says, well, that's not right. They shouldn't be able to treat that person that way especially if the person is a child or elderly or there's some kind of, you know, there's some kind of disparity in authority or power. So Ephesians 4.3 speaks of the action on our part that we are to do to maintain this unity of the spirit. This is Ephesians 4.3. It says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So here the Apostle Paul speaks of the unity of the Spirit and points to the necessary condition, which is that we maintain peace among each other. So the question is, how are we to maintain peace? Well, we can find that answer just by looking at the context. So I'll read that verse again in the context of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So, the way we keep the bond of peace is with lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearing one another in love. So let's dig a little bit deeper into this. We want to be clear that the lowliness and the meekness being spoken of here is not the kind that simply overlooks wrongs. If you are in a community or a workplace where there are a lot of sinners, I'm sure you've noticed that they, you know, people who aren't Christians wouldn't think in these terms, but this is how they behave is they know, well, we all are going to do things we shouldn't do 
So my coworker cancels on me at the last minute. Well, I've probably done that and probably will do it again. So I'm just going to overlook it and let it go and we're going to move on like it didn't happen. That's not the kind of forbearance that Jesus is talking about. So we have two instances in the book of Matthew where Jesus talks about how we are to deal with these things that would break the bond of peace between us. So the first is in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll begin reading in Matthew 5, 23. Jesus said, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. So in this case, this is a situation where we become aware that someone has something against us. Now, perhaps we actually did do something wrong, or perhaps there's just a misunderstanding. But Jesus was very emphatic that before we come to worship God, before we bring our gift to the altar, we have to go and make it right with that brother or sister. So the first thing is that if someone is offended at us, we have an obligation to talk to them. And I just want to quickly add here this this final verse 25 about agreeing with your adversary quickly what can happen is if you do truly offend a real child of god and your offense is rather severe what may happen is that person can begin to cry out to god for justice and they may pray something like lord deal with this person because i've tried to talk to them and they're stubborn they won't make it right there's nothing more I can do. Now that's not a situation you want to find yourself in because Jesus is warning us that if we're delivered to the judge, we'll be cast into prison. So God's judgment will come on us if we refuse to make things right with our offended brothers and sisters. So the first thing, just to review, is if we become aware that someone has something against us, it's our duty to go make it right with them. But it's also true, and we see this in Matthew 18, that if someone has offended us, it's our responsibility to go talk to them about it. So this is Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. So if someone offends us, we're not supposed to go talk to our best friend about how that person offended us. That's gossiping. But if someone offends us, we're supposed to pray and then go talk to that person. And sometimes it is just a misunderstanding, but sometimes there is really a real offense and you need to get that clear between each other. So what we're seeing here is that whether someone has offended you or whether you have offended somebody else... Jesus holds you responsible to go and make it right with that person. Now, I just want to add here that sometimes reconciliation is not possible. Now, this can happen if the person in the wrong refuses to make it right. 
it can also happen if you did something where there's not really like a form of restitution you can make. So this is kind of a, a shocking example, but somebody I was in class with in graduate school shared how she and her friends went out to a bar while they were on a study abroad trip and they left one of the girls at the bar and then went home and she ended up being raped because she had been left there alone. Now, this person was not a Christian, so they were never able to really get through that. But that is a situation where, I mean, all you can really do is ask the person to forgive you and ask, is there anything I can do to make it right? Because obviously there's no way that you can actually restore that person's lost virtue to them. Now, that's a very unhappy situation, but you need to do your due diligence to make it right as much as you can. The other thing that can happen is sometimes, as I said, the other person refuses to make it right. So in that case, depending on the situation, you may need to forgive the person even if they don't apologize. But if it's a more severe situation, for example, a situation of abuse, we do not condone that anyone should stay in an abusive relationship. So in that case, then we would follow through the Matthew 18 passage, which talks about then bringing two or three others to talk to the person, then bringing the whole church. And if they still refuse to repent, then you acknowledge that they're no longer part of the fellowship. So the point of all this is to maintain the unity of love and of the spirit. And that requires us to make sure that we're clear with each other. And as any offense comes up, to immediately deal with it. We don't want to let it fester. We don't want to let bitterness start to rankle in our heart. Accusations that may not even be true against another person. As soon as you notice something, you want to go make it right. I've been in churches, Alexandra, where the people say the church is not a safe place. I've been puzzled by that. But I've come to understand it. What makes a church a safe place is when everyone is playing by the same book. Everyone is choosing to be meek. Everyone is choosing to be humble. Everyone is choosing to walk in love. And when something happens, we talk about it. We don't just walk away. We don't just leave. We talk about it. We don't want to walk in any known sin in the church because if we do, the world will not believe us when we begin to talk to them about the love of Jesus. Yes. And so what will sometimes happen, you know, someone can offend us in a really small way. You know, maybe I try talking to somebody and they're stubborn. So I say, okay, I'm going to give them a little bit of time. I'm just going to pray about it. And then the next day they come and they apologize to me. Okay, well now we're fine. And then we just move on and I usually just completely forget. After I forgive someone, I just can't even remember what happened. So I have a hard time thinking of examples because I actually forget. So the scripture that I shared in Ephesians 4.3, in the King James it says we're in to endeavor. The New American Standard says be diligent. The NIV says make every effort 
to keep the unity of the spirit. Now again, this unity of the spirit is a real present experience that Jesus saw as necessary for the conversion of the world. It's not sentimental. It's the most precious gift, I think, that God gives us is having other brothers and sisters to truly love and to be loved by. But it's also not optional when it comes to the Great Commission. It's When Jesus said love one another, it wasn't just like advice on how to be a good person. It was actually a command of God. So let's dig a little bit deeper. So the key aspect of this love is that it is an identification with our brothers and sisters as with ourselves. Again, it's an identification with our brothers and sisters as with ourselves. So we see this most explicitly in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. So what that means is I don't see you as separate from me. That doesn't mean you're not an individual with free will, but it means that I love you the same way I would love myself. And often this will result in self-denial. So, for example, it means that if you can't make your car payment, that's the same to me as if I can't make my car payment. And so I pay for it if I can. It's the same thing. If I, if I can't pay my rent, you feel that as if you couldn't pay yours. And so you pay it for me just like you would pay it for yourself. I've often thought it would be a beautiful thing to see Christians take on second jobs to help their brothers and sisters get out of debt. However, this identification isn't just financial. So the Apostle Paul expressed the height of this identification with his brethren and loving them as himself. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, For now we can go on living as long as you are standing firm in the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians 3.8. So think about this. The Apostle Paul had given up his standing in the synagogue, he was considered a heretic by those who previously held him in high esteem. He was beaten, stoned, imprisoned. He was chased out of town, shipwrecked. He was bitten by a venomous serpent, all because he sought to bring the Gentiles to a saving knowledge of Christ. You can imagine as Paul is sitting in prison, all of the Jews who were still in the synagogue talking about it and saying, you know, this is the judgment of God on Paul. He never should have gone after that false messiah. He was a blasphemer. You know, Paul really paid a price to follow Jesus. But that giving up everything for Jesus actually looked like giving up everything for the salvation of others. And this was so much the sole focus of his life that he essentially said, I can go on living as long as you are standing firm in the Lord. So his love for, the, for their souls was so great that he felt he would have died if they were to fall away from Christ. He speaks in another part of, there were those who used to follow Jesus, and he says, I now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. In Galatians 4.19, he, he cries out about the backslidden Galatians, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. But this wasn't only the Apostle Paul. The Apostle John echoes many of this same sentiment throughout his letters. 
So we can look at Second John. He writes, To the elect lady, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And then in Third John, he writes to Gaius, For I was overjoyed when the brothers came and testified about your devotion to the truth in which you continue to walk. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So here, the children he's referring to are spiritual children. They are Christian converts. And he's saying that the greatest joy that he has in his entire life is to hear that these converts are continuing to walk in the truth. So this is a challenge to us. Can you actually say this about yourself? Can you say that you have no greater joy than to hear and to see that your pastor continues to walk in the truth? Can you say that you have no greater joy than to see that new Christians continue to walk in the truth? Would you be willing to make any sacrifice necessary so that they would persevere in the faith? Now let's really get down to it. Let's use the example of your pastor. Have you offered even one prayer for your pastor this past week? Have you prayed that the Holy Spirit would give him unction in his preaching? That he would be anointed to win many souls to Christ? If you doubt whether your pastor's even converted, have you been praying for his conversion? And then it's not just your pastor, but think about There's sick, there's elderly people in your church, there's those who are struggling financially. Have you asked yourself and prayed about whether you could help them by bringing them meals, by cleaning their house? I had a friend whose mother was dying and I said, can I bring you any meals? Because they were just taking care of this dying person full time for several weeks. You know, their house needed to be cleaned. I just cleaned the bathroom. I didn't even ask them. Have you been praying that they would have a bold and effective witness for Christ? Can you say that you have no greater joy than to hear that your brothers and sisters abroad in countries like Iraq, who are being faced with the decision, convert to Islam or die, choose instead to remain Christians? Is that your greatest joy when you hear, wow, that person chose to follow Jesus rather than convert to Islam and they were killed? Do you say that's the greatest joy that I could possibly have? Or would you be willing to make any sacrifice necessary for the persecuted in prayer, in giving, in aid, so that they would stand fast in the Lord? And when we think about this, we see that this was, a, this was one of the secrets of success of the persecuted church, both in the early church and today. It's that the Christians cherish and love each other. Look at the care of the church for the apostles, for example. When Peter was imprisoned, what did the church do? Acts 12.5 tells us, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. So look at what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that some of the church prayed for Peter. It doesn't say that the elders prayed for Peter. It doesn't say that just the prayer team prayed for Peter. It says the entire church prayed for Peter. And they didn't just have a one-hour prayer meeting and then go home. Their identification with Peter was so great that they prayed without ceasing for him. 
They're praying for Peter as if they themselves were in prison. So we can infer from this that our dear brothers and sisters who prayed for the Apostle Peter felt the same way that Paul did towards the Thessalonians. They probably felt, how can I go on living if Peter denies Christ in this hour of trial? How can I go on living if Peter is murdered and he can't fulfill the gospel commission? Because of their prayers, he was released. The point that I'm showing is that they couldn't just sit by and have like a lack of concern in their hearts. They truly felt themselves to be one with Peter and that's why they were able to pray this way. And yet today we see a lack of prayer on behalf of the saints. So I'm not speaking now about prayer for the salvation of the lost. I'm speaking about prayer for the perseverance in faith of the saints. I've met some people who say, you know, once someone's saved, they're saved, God's going to take care of them. I don't have to do anything. Well, that's really not loving, and that's really not a biblical example. We're to pray that Christians would persevere in the face of strong temptations. We're to pray that they would be delivered from torture, persecution, death. There's a scripture I often pray in the Psalms that says the Lord releases the prisoner who was appointed unto death. One example is there's the missionary who recently had his trial, Andrew Brunson. He's been imprisoned in Turkey for some time. So we hear this and perhaps we offer a brief prayer, but where is our unction? Where are our tears? Where is our burden? We behave as if they're in God's hands and I don't have any responsibility for the outcome. Now, let's think about this. If this is how we treat our own people, if this is how Christians are treating other Christians, who is going to want to convert to Christianity? It's loveless, it's cold, it's uncaring. There's this need for all of us to truly identify with our brothers and sisters as ourselves. Now, I wanted to return briefly to this, as I was sharing before, the, the actual experience of this love. So, I have been blessed on several rare occasions to be part of small meetings where this unity of the Spirit existed. So, I want to try to describe what it was like. So, I was in a group of people who were not physically related to each other. They spent all of their time together. When they weren't working, they were together. And there was just this conscious, ever-present, subduing effect of the Holy Spirit. So it's like everything is hushed. You're very aware of the holiness of God and of the intimacy that you're sharing. And so there's great care that's taken not to say or to do anything that would break that. And you become aware that even just making an off-color remark, making a certain joke, would break it, and so you don't do it. But there's also this an incredible gentleness and an affection towards each other. So in, in several situations, I have just eaten a meal together with Christians in this kind of setting. And... It's, there's just this overwhelming desire in your heart to serve them, 
you you love that you can go get them a glass of water you love to clean all the dishes <laughs> you're so happy yes i can pass you the plate you just want to do everything you can because you just cherish them they're like a very precious delicate beautiful child of god and you just love them and i've had this happen with people who i met for the very first time so that's what I'm saying, is it doesn't require us to drum something up. It's a gift of God. It's an upwelling in our hearts because it's God's love in us for those Christians. That's why Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. That's not some impossible command. That's actually just the natural result of Jesus loving other people in us. And then I, when I've prayed with christians in this kind of setting it's been the most incredible experience because it's like it says in james you know if one person weeps you weep with them if one person rejoices you rejoice with them that's what it's like or maybe that's not james but the I, the point i'm making is that the prayer is powerful there's a strong presence of god there's a unity there's strong crying there's shouts of joy when you sing together, it's heavenly, and nobody cares about anything except Jesus. And that's the best part, is that there's just absolutely no fluff, there's nothing frivolous. It's just, you're all there because you love Jesus and you're sold out to him. It's glorious. You know, I'm tired of, I'm exhausted by battling with men and women who want to be a part of the church but refuse to be born from above by people who say yes I want to serve Jesus but they want to hold on to their sin that's not what God has for us and the love that we're speaking about today is so vital to heal the broken heart to give direction to allow the Holy Spirit to function. But I want to tell you the very heart of this for both of us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit will not come in a place or to a people who are angry and hostile with each other to a group of people who don't love one another this way. And in the church, so many times I've come in and I don't mean to be critical because the church is the it is the most beloved thing on the earth by Jesus, his church. Now I recognize that many who call themselves his church are not his church. But often people will sit in the pews like crows on a line. And they won't say anything, they won't do anything, they won't pray anything. They're all shut down. They're all into themselves. And that kills the love of Jesus in that church. You ask for testimonies. It's the same testimony they gave 10 years ago. No, it has to be fresh and alive and filled with the vibrant love of Jesus for one another and for Jesus. So this raises the question for you, our listeners, is are there blocks to you loving others in, their ch in your church? 
Or are there blocks to others in the church loving you? Are there blocks that prevent you from trusting others or prevent others from trusting you? Do you just need to go talk to someone and get off your chest what you're feeling in a kind way? But just cl get clear and just say what you need to say. But let's be honest. I've seen examples where you have done that, Alexandra. And the person was so offended by your sweet kindness in trying to talk about the real issue that they totally cut you off and wanted never to speak to you again. And that hurts. But that's part of the risk if we want to truly be the church. Otherwise, everyone's just going to walk on eggshells. And I won't do that. Let's make omelets. Yes. So the final thing I wanted to talk about is that this unity of the spirit and this love was a necessary pre prerequisite for three things. One, for the coming of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Two, for continued revival and fellowship in the church, for the continued salvation of the lost. And three, for continued outpourings of the Holy Spirit. So I'll just look quickly at three verses in Acts that show this. So first, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So this one accord was necessary before the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And it continued, because we turn to Acts 2, 46, it says, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat or their food with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So the continued fellowship, the continued praising of God, the continued favor with all the people, and the continued action of the Lord adding to the church daily those who should be saved is intimately linked to them continuing daily with one accord. Third, when we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 24, this was the first instance where this early church really faced persecution. You'll recall that Peter and John healed the man outside of the temple. They were then arrested, interrogated, they were beaten, and then they were released. So they go back to the church, Peter and John, and this is how the church responds. This is Acts 4.24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And then they pray together. And then God's response in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. So there was the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.1, but then when they encountered persecution, they cried out for this additional pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And this happened because they came together in one accord, and this translation even says they lifted up their voice. It's as if they all collectively together have one voice that they're lifting up to God. 
And the result is that every single one of them was filled with the Holy Spirit, and every single one of them spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, for that to happen, it means we have to leave our caves, we have to leave the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we have to choose Jesus Christ first and foremost as our Lord and as our Savior. And as we draw closer and closer to Jesus, we will draw closer and closer to each other. So let me read for you in Acts, the fifth chap- the fourth chapter, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. So they were agreeing with each other intellectually as they listened to the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of scripture, and they were one in emotion. They were together. They knew who they were and what they were doing. It says, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. And there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it in the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone as he had need. Now, just this morning, I discovered that a man I've been witnessing to and testifying to has a bad tooth. And the doctor has told him it has become septic. It is poison. But you know what? I have nothing to help this man with. Because the tithe has not been brought into the house of the Lord. So there's no food. Essentially, in the church today we are failing in this love mission and each is breaking off in their own way in their own independence and we've got to come back together if we expect the baptism of the Holy Spirit to come and if we expect revival to come we're going to have to come together in Jesus now part of what's so difficult for both of us is we've been praying for you that revival will come on the air as we are preaching and teaching. We just got a text message from a dear brother. His wife has bone cancer and she is in deep pain. And he asked, please, would you pray for her? Well, yes. But I don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power to heal this precious woman. If we want the power of Pentecost, we're going to have to pay the price and humble our hearts with one another and choose to begin to pay the price to be a true follower of Jesus and give up following the world. Yes, and I would recommend that you begin by humbling your heart and taking responsibility for what you've done wrong and getting all that clear before you then talk to other people about how they have hurt you. I'd like to take a minute and pray for this precious woman. Lord, we've been asked by one of our listeners if we would lift up his wife 
who is dying with bone cancer and she is in a great deal of pain at home. Lord, I'm asking by your grace would you move supernaturally upon her body right now and would you heal her in the name of Jesus? Would you lift her up off that bed of pain and anguish and restore her to her family? Lord, I know this man is a serious follower of yours. I know he prays. And he's asking us to pray. So, Lord, I'm asking now, with a prayer of faith, for this precious wife to be healed now in the name of Jesus. And we will give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're out of time for this broadcast. Alexandra, you did an awesome job. Thank you. Thank you. This is material she just went in her study and she wrote it out because it was so much on her heart. I said, you have to share this. Well, we would love to hear from you. If you'd like to be one who brings food into the house of the Lord for the work of the gospel, to pay for this radio broadcast, would you write to us quickly at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Also visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. Thank you. God bless you. And to present you blameless Before the presence of his glory With great joy With great joy Now unto him who is able To keep you from falling And to present you blameless Before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.